Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, um, and uh, I'm like filled with delight today because we've got a sort of experiment um, headed your way. I have I have my old friend back on the podcast. Eric Lindstrom has returned to the podcast. Not only has Eric returned to the podcast, but he's returned to the podcast to talk about the poet that we talked about the last time he was on the podcast, the poet James Schuyler. Um, a poet whom Eric and I both really love. Uh, the the poet who was the occasion for the last time Eric and I were in the same room as each other. Eric and I were both just in New York City um, to celebrate the centennial of Schuyler's birth. Um, and so he's been much on both of our minds, not just for that reason, but for many others. And um, it's such a thrill to get to talk with Eric again today. Um, last time Eric came on, the the poem that we talked about was Schuyler's poem, February, which um, seems to take place, or it's as though the poem is being spoken. Well, Schuyler in that poem, you might remember, says on the day before March 1st, um, which could be February 28th, probably is, or maybe maybe it's a leap year and it's the 29th. And I sort of dragooned Eric into coming on the podcast last time and insisted that we talk, you know, ordinarily I, I invite guests to choose a poem. Um, and, and in this case, I said, Eric, let's do February and let's do it on this date. And Eric um, sort of rolled his eyes at my literalism. Yeah, and just- now the joke is on me or him, I can't tell yeah, which. What both one, both. both of us probably, and and on you, dear listener, um, because Eric this time um, emailed me and he said, "Hey, let's talk about Skyler's poem Empathy and New Year," um, which is a New Year's Eve and day poem, um, and he said, "Let's do it um, in a timely way." Um, and um, and I thought that was a great idea. And then what I found utterly charming and very Eric-like about this interaction was that he said, "Let's talk on you know Skype or Zoom or something, or or I guess it, you know if you want to record it, that's fine. But I don't really care." <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I thought mature of me. I guess I was I, well tight. Yeah, I thought you know <laughs> I, I definitely want to talk to you and. <clears throat> the last episode we did together was such a delight for me. And um, maybe this is an extremely embarrassing thing for me to admit, but it's actually an episode I have listened to more than once because I found the conversation so stimulating that I, w- I want to make sure that I, I haven't like, I wouldn't lose any of the, the insight that was um, gained in it. So I have, I have sort of gone back over it more than once, which is not, I mean, it's hard for me to listen to my own voice, but I was there to hear Eric's. Um, and um, so let me, first of all, recommend that episode um, to any of you who haven't yet listened to it. It, it was a, it was a great early episode in the podcast run. Um, and, um, and we might get into some sort of background on Skylar and context setting and so forth, but we may also try to trim that up a little bit here and just get to the poem. So if, if you're craving more Skylar, as um, no doubt you will be after this conversation, um, I, I heartily endorse finding that earlier episode with Eric on the poem February. 
Um, and and with all of that in mind, I'm going to keep the bio, um, the intro here really brief and just tell you, remind you that Eric Lindstrom is a professor of English at the University of Vermont. Um, he's the author of, of two books. Um, his first book is called Romantic Fiat and the, and the second book called Jane Austen and Other Minds. Um, and several, he's the author of several articles, um, too many for me to list here. Um, the editor of, um, special issues of, of journals that you should look up as well. And he's working on a book, which is, is most relevant for, um, today's conversation. Um, who's, he's working on a book whose title is James Schuyler and the Poetics of Attention, Romanticism Inside Out which promises to be the first um, monograph that's dedicated to the work of um, the first academic monograph that would be dedicated um, solely to the work of James Schuyler, um, which is a really exciting um, thing. And, um, and I've, I've gotten to see bits of the thinking that goes into it and to talk with Eric about what's um, motivating and driving that book. And I can just say, I'm really excited. Um, I'm really excited to read it. You know, the last time Eric and I talked, um, I say, I say that this, this time feels like an experiment. I guess every one of these conversations I has feels a bit experimental to me. And, um, and, and part of the variables that change are the, the poem, of course, but also the person I'm talking to and the relationship I have with them and just their temperament and, and intelligence and so on. Eric, as I think I <clears throat> talked about last time, is somebody I've known for decades now. He and I started graduate school together at Yale and have known each other for, for over 20 years. Um, you know, one thing that you said to me, Eric, last time was that, um, you know, you were really excited about the, um, uh, it's, this is going to sound like I'm really patting myself on the back here, but it's, <laughs> I'm, I, I have a point that I'm about to get to. You, you said you, you found yourself excited about the, the, project that the podcast was that it seemed to you like an uh, sort of exciting way to be doing literary criticism and also an exciting way to be doing friendship um which i found really moving and i it was the kind of thought which you so often give me that i didn't have the words for until you offered them and and it occurred to me this time that now that it's you know it's not quite but nearly a year since that last conversation we had and Schuyler's poems, I mean, obviously in particular, the poem that we chose last time and the poem that we've chosen this time are so interested in the passage of time and in pinning down dates and things like that and in, and in the difficulty that and confusion hmm. and insufficiencies of, of attempts to pin down dates hmm. um, that 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 maybe taken together the last conversation we had and this one might might also be seen as an experiment or as as a as an interesting experiment in the way we do time you know the way we measure time and its passage um so um eric lindstrom welcome back to the podcast thanks for suggesting it to me um how, how are you feeling today i'm i'm great um i'm feeling really good i got most of my shopping done i hope you all out there are in a happy, peaceful uh, place today, whenever this gets released. And it's wonderful to hear you and see you, Kamran. I have to say, too, um, at a moment where I really needed to devise a class that would work for me this fall, your podcast helped me teach my modern poetry 2162. 
class at Vermont, which I haven't cool. seen the evals yet, but I think students really loved and it was uh, much to do with your contribution. And um, thank you uh, in this day and age where we've got to find ways to teach our students bigger classes. One poem a day was my savior. And uh, so many of the poems that I thought about teaching or taught were from episodes of the podcast. And so I want to say thanks to those of you that have given your thoughts uh, and have listened because it really helped me out. Uh, that's really cool. And to I want to keep doing it. Like, I think there's actually kind of momentum. Yeah. Pedagogy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me say, let me say just quickly, I don't, I don't want to um, create the implication here that the, the fact that I've, I, you know, and Eric is, I've, I've now had two guests back on. I had Lanny Hammer on twice also for sort of topical or occasional reasons, both times, you know, to talk about James Merrill's Christmas tree poem on Christmas last year. And, um, and then to, to talk about uh, his friend, Louise Glick, who'd passed away recently. Um, I have more episodes lined up with guests who have not yet appeared on the podcast (laughs) and future guests and current listeners should not be under the impression that I am, running out of guests to have in fact the poetry studies waters uh are are deep and um and wide and um it's just a it's it's been a marvelous kind of discovery to me that i meant no i feel like i'm in no danger of running out of people cool people to talk to this just feels like an indulgence today for us and i hope i hope it'll be a fun one for listeners we're recording um I don't mind saying it feels like a Skylarian thing to observe on Friday, December 22nd um, in the afternoon. I I think if all goes according to plan, you'll be listening. The earliest you, you would be listening to this would be next year in, on, on the first of, of, of the year, 2024. Um, so we're on this side of Christmas right now. <clears throat> and, um, and yet you'll be listening to the conversation, presumably on the other side of it. And, um, so I just, I I want to note that, um, the, the poem, um, Eric, that you've chosen, um, is another that we have a recording to and, 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 and I'll play the, I'll play the recording in a minute, you know, as I, as I said last time, and I'm just going to stop saying, I think, as I said last time or whatever. So sorry for the repetitions, but let this apology cover future repetitions as well. Um, Schuyler, for th- for those of you who, who don't know him very well, was a poet who uncharacteristically of poets of his generation didn't like to give poetry readings or didn't feel comfortable giving poetry readings and didn't give any poetry readings until very late in his life. Uh, we have recordings of the, of, of the few that survive. And um, this poem seemed to you know, become part of the set list um, for for the readings that he did give in the last couple of years of his life. The most famous of those readings was the first one he gave. Happened in 1988 at the um, on November 15th, 1988, at the Dia Art Foundation in New York City. Um, and um, and and the recording that I'm going to play for you in a moment is from that um, reading. I I feel like I need to set up the recording in just the slightest way before I play it, which is to say that um, Schuyler's friend, John Ashbery, introduced him and and gave just a beautiful and 
really interesting, I think, um, introduction to him, sort of situating his friend in literary history in ways that are, um, you know, in some ways that make perfect sense to me and other ways that sort of raise my eyebrows. Um, Scott, uh, uh, sorry, Ashbery, who was without, without a doubt, the, the kind of more famous of the friend pair, um, and these poets, uh, you know, along with Frank O'Hara and, and, and Kenneth Koch and uh, Barbara Gast, sort of uh, members of the so-called New York School of Poets. Um, in the course of his introduction, Ashbery quotes from the poem that we're going to listen to. I think not knowing necessarily that that Jimmy Schuyler would be reading from that poem in just a few minutes. So when Schuyler begins to read the poem and gets to the lines that Ashbury quotes, you'll notice that, that his voice sort of changes in a in a kind of unspoken acknowledgement of the fact that you've just heard these lines quoted to you. He sort of laughs at the fact that he's doing that. The audience laughs in response. Um, I think that interesting context might might be useful to listeners who um, who don't know the recording and and weren't um, listening to Ashbery's intro. The the Ashbery's intro um, alludes to the lines you're about to hear and then ends this way. So these are Ashbery's last words before Schuyler takes the stage. I give you a poet who knows the names for things and whose knowing proves something. Um, so um, that as a way into the poem, like I said, I'll now play the recording. Unless Eric, you, is there any context you want to set before we play this? No, that was great. I'm already thinking about the content of the poem because yeah, to jump ahead, quoting. Yeah. Quit quoting. And now you're making me think I'll say it now. Now's the moment. It's like Ashbery lays a joke in there. Maybe he did know Skylar was going to read it and therefore quote Ashbery, which um, not to divulge too much of my positionality on Skylar and Ashbery as, as friends, great, but sometimes complex friends. Maybe Ashbery laid that joke in there so Skylar would step into the <laughs> trap of quoting him, quoting him. In a poem that's is. sort of about um, quoting at a, about ambivalences, about quoting, right? Yeah, which which you, you will hear in just a it's moment. Really, so yeah. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. No, it's good. It's good. Um, and um, and so re- remember, we'll we'll make a link to the poem available to you um, so that you can look at the text of it. It's it's maybe a bit on the longer side of poems we talk about on the podcast. So you know, settle in. It take four minutes or so for you to listen to um, Schuyler's reading. I'll, I'll also um, direct you to, as I am now in the habit of doing, to the Penn Sound um, a website and archive, um, which has uh, great recordings of Schuyler and many of the other poets um, whom we've discussed on this podcast. So that's where I've, I've um, taken this um, audio from. Uh, so without further ado, I give you a poet who knows the names for things and whose knowing proves something. Empathy and New Year. A notion like that of empathy inspires great distrust in us because it connotes a further dose of irrationalism and mysticism. Levy Strauss. (laughs) One, Whitman took the cars all the way from Camden and when he got here, or rather there, said, quit quoting and took the next back 
to the Jersey Meadows, which were that then. But what if it is all my uh, illusion? I doubt it, though. Men are not so inventive, or few are. Not knowing a name for something proves nothing. Right now it isn't raining, snowing, sleeting, slushing, yet it is doing something. As a matter of fact, it is raining snow. Snow from cold clouds that melts as it strikes. To look out a window is to sense wet feet. Now to infuse the garage with a subjective state and can't make it seem to, even if it is a little like what the dentist saw, a dark gullet with gleams and red. You come to me at midnight and say, I can smell that after Christmas letdown coming like a hound. <laughs> and clarify, I can smell it just like a hound does. So it came. It's a shame expectations are so often to be counted on. New Year is nearly here, and who, knowing himself, would endanger his desires, resolving them in a formula? After a while, even a wish flashing by as a thought provokes a knock on wood so often, a little dish-like place worn in this desk just holds a lucky stone inherited from an unlucky man. 1968, what a lovely name to give a year, even better than the dogs. <laughs> Wirt, bird thou never, and woofy. Personally, I'm going to call the new year mutt. Flattering it will get you nowhere. <laughs> Two, awake at four and heard a snowplow not rumble, a huge beast at its chow, and wondered, is it 1968 or 1969 for a bit? 1968 had such a familiar sound. Got coffee and started reading Darwin. So modest, so innocent, so pleased at the surprise that he should grow up to be him. <laughs> How grand to begin a new year with a new writer you really love. A snow shovel scrapes, it's 12 hours later, and the sun that came so late is almost gone. A few pink minutes, and yet the days get longer. Coming from the movies last night, snow had fallen in almost still air and lay on all, so all twigs were emboldened to make big disclosures. It felt warm, warm that is for cold, the way it does when snow falls without wind. A snow picture, you said, under the clung-to elms, worth painting. I said, the weather operator said, turning tomorrow to bitter cold. Then the wind will veer round to the north and blow it, all of it down. Maybe, I thought, it will get cold some other way. You, as usual, were right. It did and has, night and snow and the threads of life for once seen as they are in ropes like roots. Thank you. So there we have James Schuyler reading Empathy and New Year, uh, reading it uh, 
two decades, it seems, more or less, after it had been written. Um, <clears throat> Eric, I um, I don't think of Schuyler as a poet who is terribly fond of epigraphs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this poem begins with one. Um, so again, from Levi Strauss, a notion like that of empathy inspires great distrust in us because it connotes a further dose of irrationalism and mysticism. Um, the word, the word empathy doesn't appear in the poem, but it's there in the epigraph. And, um, you know, I guess I, I guess I just want to invite you to say something about the, about the gesture of this epigraph as a way into the poem. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it really is an instance where reading the start of the poem is uh, is essential in the epigraph, even before the start, in a way. So uh, Schuyler used collage technique a lot mm-hmm. and quoted a lot and read a lot. Um, not necessarily for, you know, academic uh, reasons, right? Like he, he doesn't quote like Eliot, um, so why is this at the start of the poem? You mean he doesn't quote in the way that Eliot does? He do, he, yeah, he's not trying to sort of establish a sort of cultural um, center point or tradition um, or make you feel like you need have read something to read him. I think you're right in your description to say that the intentionality of this um, is that empathy is in it. And the word empathy is not otherwise in the poem. So like, where is empathy in this poem is a question I think that we'll yeah. probably try to hunt, but also one that will kind of permeate whatever we say or other people honestly say about this poem. It's in the title and it's in this Levi-Strauss. Um, yeah. It's an anthropology text. Like we were talking about this just a little as we, you know, uh, got our computers going and, and did the troubleshooting. <laughs> like this was a talk and then, uh, an anthropology essay in a journal. I mean, a, a pretty, yeah. a, a pretty kind of center lane trade journal, current anthropology, <laughs> and then in a book. Yeah. So, okay. Skylar probably read this in a book. Um, but the other part of it that I find fascinating, the more I think about, especially given what empathy is, um, you know, the ability to feel what another is feeling or even, mm-hmm in a cognitive way, perhaps to think another's thought, like, um, it's, it's difficult to know how to take this epigraph and therefore it's difficult to figure out what position on empathy we ought to have at the start of the poem. Um, I'm in a poetry job search right now and I'm learning more about contemporary poetry as a romanticist who mostly reads older stuff. And to me, it seems like contemporary poetry, which Schuyler perhaps isn't writing at this point, um, is really all about empathy, right? Like uh, subject positions are often earnest uh, and engaged and political um, along with like uh, aesthetic complexity and technique. And I think this epigraph is almost like a tender trap. I don't think it's a meanly ironic trap, but if we if, if we read it straight, we enter a poem where empathy is distanced by a kind of anthropological academic mistrust of something that connotes irrationalism and mysticism. So maybe we start reading the poem thinking 
that it's seeking a kind of neutrality. Um, I don't think Schuyler was anything like an anthropologist, but there are reasons why he might be wary of right. the high emotional threshold of empathy, of, of mind melding, of feeling what another right. feels. Then the other way to read it is to say he doesn't uh, mean us to align with it. Um, in which case it's cute. You mean to align with the with what with Levi Strauss position. Yeah, yeah, right. That that he's setting it up. He's to, sort of counter, he's arguing back. Yeah. Just in the sense that like he's he's not a academic, he's not an anthropologist. Um, this is a kind of uh, you know, high tone register that he immediately wants us to to spin off of. And if that's the case, then we're starting a poem that is earnestly about empathy, whose initial move is kind of ironic. That's interesting. <laughs> so it's that's why I called a tender trap, which is the name of a fifties movie. Um, but you know, I, I think this is kind of a trap, but it's not meant to be like malicious or like, you know, you're going to have to gnaw your arm out or leg out to get out of it. It just puts you in a position where there's wariness along with the earnestness of this all important question sorry if that was me, of how to how to feel with or think with um, in something like an unmediated level, right? Because right. empathy is the strongest claim for feeling with. It's stronger even than sympathy, right. which crosses difference. Um, empathy is, is supposed to be like direct. Mm-hmm. So all of that kind of gets triggered, but but honestly, it, it, it takes a lot of readings even to start um yeah no well see there's there's so much so much in what you've been saying eric i i want to um i want to draw a bit of it i just want to pull on a couple strings a little bit um one when you when you made the remark about sort of your reading of contemporary poetry as being sort of all about empathy what you know i'm thinking of contemporary poets who who are um who who stake positions that are kind of skeptical of um mm. of empathy you know of of empathy and and sort of w- want to have a kind of um or have a wariness let's say about um claims to, mm. you know to, to empathy um but you know the contemporary but but that's not to say that contemporary poetry isn't interested in or obsessed with the idea you know, in a way sort of yeah. being against something is also a way of considering it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and your generalizations on contemporary poetry are much more, um, um, well-earned and valuable than mine, but I, I think, no, we're, I'm, yeah. I think we're both getting at something though, which is like, and this reminds me of, of Schuyler and the kind of flatness, the descriptiveness, um, of the New York school who had a kind of flat, um, aesthetic often, but, but how do you write a poem with empathy in the title? Like it, it conceptualizes right. something that should be affective and human and it tells rather than shows to put it in just like a super yeah. straightforward way. Um, it's a funny title because to achieve empathy in a poem with that name, um, you know, really makes it uh, a meta thing rather than a story that, you know, we draw, we draw that concept out of. Um, and I think, you know, that, also connects to me to how Skylar reads it, which is mm. a more comic reading than he typically gives. His voice is always, you know, gruff. I find it beautiful, but mm-hmm. you know, it, he, he his voice gives a steadiness to a poem which is actually quite various. You know, there's a lot of playfulness in the poem. I think right at the start, 
Um, There are lines that make you laugh. They're the dogs, Wirt and Woofy. But then there are moments in this poem that just are stop where you are, drop dead, plangent, moving, um, unwantedly insightful. So like this poem kind of runs the gamut in terms of its tone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But to center empathy in a poem seems kind of like an impossible task straight from the title. Yeah. Well, um, so that, well, that brings me to the, the, the second of two strings I wanted to pull on in the thing that you had said a moment ago, which is, I think you, you said very kind of swiftly, you, you, you made a distinction, which I think would be useful to elaborate um, between sympathy on the one hand and empathy on the other. I think colloquially, I mean, obviously there are people for whom that distinction matters a great deal and who would never think of those terms as synonymous. But I think it's sort of colloquially in our in our culture, we sometimes hear those terms used interchangeably or un, or a kind of unthinking yeah. association of those terms. Right. And I, so I guess I, I want for you to um, say more about what the um, the, the competing um, kind of implications of, of those terms might be like what would distinguish one from the other and i whether or not you or skylar or i or the listeners should accept the levi strauss position i think we could probably account for why somebody a, a reasonable person might when considering the possibility of empathy think of it as irrational and mystical as a mm-hmm. as a as a way of sort of feeling, let's say so, and and maybe wouldn't feel the same way about sympathy. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Eric, could you just say more about those two words? My brain is going back to things I learned long ago about the 18th century, but I feel like sympathy That's is a term. <laughs> well, I mean, if you're starting to read books about sympathy, at least in a school context, you're reading like Adam Smith and David Hume and, ending with, you know, Susan Sontag and others, like sympathy crosses difference and it often just like allows the subject position to be where they are. And, and, um, it's, it's mediated. Um, so let's say like you, you, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Sympathy keeping time. He has this beautiful phrase, which is great for poets. Whereas empathy. And I, I feel like in my classes and the life I move in, empathy is kind of one. Like people use that as the default because it's about like being there, like really feeling it, feeling just what another feels. But like from a ideas context, a philosophical point of view, like empathy is a much higher bar. You know, it, it's uh, it raises the question about how you really uh, commune with another mind, another life, another body. Right. So, you know, and that, and that, is I think in a lot of ways what this poem plays with and gets at. Um, yeah. Whereas sympathy uh, is is much more guarded and um, is a kind of discourse that you know is going to find ways to sort of work itself out. It's 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 always um, interrelating. But empathy is just like you're either there, man, with the other, <laughs> and feeling what they feel, or you're not. Um, it's more of a absolute thing um which i think is probably why skylar grabs it there you know if somebody's an empath they're literally feeling the pain 
Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of, the of other. I'm thinking of Bill Clinton. I feel yeah, your pain. Feel your pain. You know, right. that that might be the a, a good example of the of the kind of bad faith claim to empathy that people would rightly be suspicious of, right? Totally. If empathy always works that way, then we would it would be good to be skeptical of it. Yeah, and, uh, and it's I'm sort of collapsing the distance between the person who's feeling it and the object that has aroused it or something. Yeah. Right. But, it, but, but the problem with it is that it might sort of kick that person out of the p- position they're in because now you're in it. It's like a game of musical chairs or something. I was also wondering if there's some kind of analogy um, to be drawn between s- sympathy and empathy on the one hand and simile and metaphor on the other, mm. you know, is um, because simile retains its sort of explicit, crossing of this thing is like this other thing whereas metaphor just says this is that yeah um yeah i so you you use the word uh, musical chairs like i i think this poem opens with playfulness mm -hmm. one of the answers to where is the empathy in this poem is the first word or name this is also a poem about good that was going to be my next question for you yeah yeah. so you know like dates get names 1968 1969 i think that's endearing and conceptually kind of playful but then the first name of the poem is the proper name, Whitman. So Whitman has to be the answer uh, to where's empathy in this poem. Um, yeah. And I, I do think this question of metaphor and simile is, is right at the heart of the poem. And even its metaphors, um, you know, metaphor means to carry over, um, you know, mm-hmm. words to that effect are words of transport. And so Whitman comes mm-hmm. to where, where they are, the New York School Poets. Uh, from Camden, from New Jersey. So this is later Whitman, uh, the Whitman who lived in New Jersey, I think after his stroke in later life, um, who gets there by the means of, you know, his, his time, the cars, right? So not the subway, um, the trolley, maybe not even the L. So like the, the transport um, Mm -hmm. is already uh, attended to in the poem. And then this is definitely a poem of similes and metaphor the very end of the poem is a wonderful example of, um, I know we'll get back to it, but I just love the end of the poem so much. The the metaphor that's almost a dead metaphor at this point, threads of life rendered in terms of, I think either another metaphor ropes or simile like roots, a definite simile. So the very end of the poem is like this triple of um, a, a beautiful, but, but slightly pat metaphor, the threads of life then seen in terms of maybe two similes. Um, so he's definitely talking about simile and metaphor as a way um, about the question of, of empathy. And then the other thing that that brings to mind for me um, is that metaphor and maybe just being a poet, using figurative language, being in a poem um, is always kind of a, a, a lively evasion of the being exactly there in the spot that we associate with like the place mm. of empathy, you know, that, that the desire in this poem, that the relationship that um, kind of comes up in the end of the first part about new year's resolutions, <laughs> yeah. a, a way of sort of saying um, that to be fixed to a spot is a threat to to maybe metaphor to these things that the poem does. So I feel like, 
whereas Schuyler doesn't talk a lot directly about empathy, the whole poem, the kind of scheme of the poem is patterned by talking about and using different things that are formally and conceptually arranged a lot like this empathy, sympathy question, simile metaphor. Right. Um, you know, and then these other things about language and about, um, the sort of constitution of our world, like being here versus being there. Yeah. Then versus now. Yeah. It keeps kind of, like you said, musical chairs, um, um, practice with these things or um, hopscotch with these things as a way to kind of turn over the question of empathy that the poem is again, wary of just like dealing about dealing with head on. Yeah. Um, the, um, the, the idea of here and there comes up in the third and fourth lines of the poem and when he got here or yeah, rather so, there right Whitman took the cars all the way from Camden okay so he's in Jersey right mm-hmm. like South Jersey and when he got here so am I right to think that where Whitman is getting to is New York and Schuyler first calls by, by which I mean the city and Schuyler at first refers to new york city as here but then realizing that presumably in his writing in his moment of writing he's not actually in new york city which is a place he might have become accustomed to thinking of as here because he spent so much time living there but maybe he's in southampton right now so he's not in the city mm-hmm. so he he says you know whitman took the cars all the way from camden and when he got here or rather there right because i'm not I'm not in New York city, so I can't call it here. I have to call it there. I think that's right. And then if you're looking at the book, um, this is in um, Schuyler's second book of 1972, the crystal lithium and it's headed, this section is headed Southampton in New York. So, right. It's sort of placed in both places. Somehow placed in both places. I I think there's another reading too, because um, well, the truth of Schuyler's, you know, biographical life, like he was probably living with Fairfield Porter uh, the great painter and Schuyler's, I think, best friend, really, um, and 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 lo- lover in, in some capacity. I think we we all have established. Um, the, he was in Southampton, Porter. Schuyler is a New York school poet. Um, so there's this kind of tacking back and forth between yeah. and there. But then I also think it's temporal, right? There's a tacking back and forth between now and then. Oh, I see what you mean. Here and there. So even as Schuyler thinks of himself as, let's say, in Manhattan, and, you know, Whitman is a, you know, the, right. the guard of Manhattan, even though he was from Brooklyn and then Camden. When he got here, or rather there, I think part of that here, there is temporal because we don't know what time this wonderful encounter is happening because even even if Schuyler were in New York when he were writing Schuyler's New York isn't Whitman's New York yeah Whitman's New York would be a there both in place and in time that's so great any any New York kind of dislocation yeah it's dislocated here yeah with the pronouns you know yeah um, here and there and and of course the question that that might always be raised um about you know, a moment like this in a poem, uh, and what I mean by that are like moments of self-correction. Yeah, you know that that gesture, or rather, and then say it the other way, is that if it's genuine self-correction, like you know, edit 
edit my man yeah. <laughs> like put in the right one you know it's like it reminds me of when elizabeth bishop says our looks too looks or, or our vision visions is too serious a word our looks too looks right? right but why keep the word visions in the poem you know yeah. one might ask of bishop if it's too serious a word like why keep the mistake in and um and here maybe it's because it's producing that weird um feeling of dislocation which is more the the topic at hand rather than simply putting a pin in a map or a, a um an, an indicator of some kind on a timeline yeah totally it's that yeah. it's that play which is of course a play of of demonstrative pronouns it's a play of appearances the play of time and space like this is a fairly cosmic poem when he brings up Maya illusion, yeah, that becomes explicit. Um, but I, I think even just in the regular old monosyllabic English pronouns of here and there, you, you get at that. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's playful. It's the sense of a kind of um, unsettled movement. Do you, um, do you have, um, Eric, do you have a reading of, of how we, or like what it means or how we should think about the fact that, you know, what Whitman said, apparently quick so the quoting. first quotation in the poem, if you don't it's count the funny. epigraph is quick quoting. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, Whitman's giving the challenge, but then comes there, um, you know, Whit- Whit- Whitman is, is the predecessor. Um, right. I'll back up a little bit because I, I think there are some allusions to key facts in this poem, which are really resonant to Schuyler and hopefully sure. to us. The Whitman of Camden is the older Whitman, who I I think was an explicitly queer poet and figure. So this is the poet who is the um, object of veneration and pilgrimage for people like Oscar Wilde and Edward Carpenter, the English writer. And they came to Whitman uh, as a democratic poet, but as um, a predecessor in a lineage of of queer love uh, that goes all the way to Allen Ginsberg. Ginsberg talks explicitly about a kind of chain of relationships that he finds important to link him back to Whitman. So that's the Whitman of Camden. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that Whitman says, quick quoting is an ironic version, of course, of like counseling the transcendentalist thing, counseling self-reliance <laughs> mm-hmm. to the poet who, um, you know, I think Schuyler inherits like that tradition. Um, I think Ashbury does too, but in a way, obviously that is a very different sensibility, um, you know, that, that isn't um, canonical the way that a Whitman or Emerson was made to be. Whitman is giving a kind of paradoxical advice because he couldn't really appear in this poem if he weren't quoted. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) And and the advice is like, uh, be original in other words. Be original. Yeah. Yeah. And then I also think the, Something about the pacing of this, um, it, it reminds me, and I can never suppress the thought of like a different aesthetic, like the Roadrunner and Wiley e. Coyote, <laughs> like a figure is summoned, zips onto the scene. It's funny. And then almost just like, is it the Roadrunner that just says beep, beep and yep. leaves? Yeah, it's funny. I had I had another cartoon playing in my mind at this moment. I had that. It's become a meme of um, from the Simpsons of Abe, Abe Simpson. Um, do you remember the episode, you know, where he walks into the, like Bart has somehow gotten the job of being the, the doorman at a whorehouse in Springfield. I I haven't seen this one, but I should. Yeah. Yeah. And Abe Simpson, his his grandfather walks in 
you know, with, and he's like whistling and he sees Bart at the door and he, and he immediately walks back out. Right. So it's like, it's like, it's a revolving <laughs> yeah, yeah. door, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's plangent. Like this poem is playful. It's almost winky, but like, it's always um, plangent. Like Whitman, of course, is the poet who says, you know, look for me under your boot soles. And like, if you have, you know, Schuyler always loved Whitman. I remember anecdotes that Doug Crace has written about where it's like when people would disparage Whitman, Schuyler would um, not yeah. just say something to to affirm uh, how lovely and important he is, but like pick a sort of, um, you know, deep cut Whitman poem and just show um, the, the quality and irreplaceability of Whitman's voice. So to, to use him this way, um, is is funny, but doesn't disavow just how important Whitman is. The very first poem in Schuyler's first collection, or his first big press collection, Freely Espousing, is a very Whitmanic poem, right. which right. I think listeners can get just from the kind of whiff of the title. Um, this comes back to Whitman. It's similarly the first poem in a collection and has a different kind of I'll say roadrunnery or bar, you know this the Simpsony kind of uh, aesthetic where um, Skyler's allowing humor to to cut up that deep relationship uh, to the poet uh, and where does Whitman go? Um, he he disappears back into Jersey. He takes a different mode of transport, um, not a bus or the subway, but the cars, um, and that you know, gets us thinking about space and time, um, the gathering of, mm-hmm. of people, but also a simile and metaphor because the link of that word kind of etymologically to to transport systems to how to get over, get from here to there. And then and then here's my big reveal. Uh, but what if, and the, Ashbury quotes these lines, but what if it is all Maya illusion? Yeah. And that goes immediately to a joke. I doubt it, though. Men are not so inventive. So human beings are not inventive enough to um, make up the fabric of our world should it prove an illusion. Um, right. The the word Maya, Maya. sort of come the sort of various uh, Indian um, religious traditions, which Vedanta, I think. Uh, other... Yeah, which which would suggest like the the world of appearance is sort of but an illusion, right? That there's. Yes. Um, um, it's a cosmic illusion, right? Uh, all the the phenomena, all the the mm. entire phenomenal world, the ego as well, um, is a is a cosmic illusion. Of course, Schuyler being um, more than the average poet, um, just com- committed to observation, yeah, um, to the realness of the particular, to the passing moment. Like this would be kind of a devastating thing for Schuyler to absorb into his poetics. Um, and it just kind of gets tossed off here. And, you know, it, I, I've always wondered, like, why um, it, I looked, you know, you start, it's so easy to find things now. I looked and Maya illusion is a line from Whitman. It's it's a line from a Whitman poem, Calamus, uh, which is the part of Leaves of Grass where Whitman really first started talking about male-male eroticism yeah. explicitly. And um, it's, a poem, it's, a, it's a poem called, Are You the Person Drawn Toward Me? Which we could look up. But it's, yeah. it's an incredible poem about the otherness of erotic life. And, and do, do you have the, do you have the I lines? I think I have it. 
um, yeah. in a link. Yeah. And so like empathy isn't in this poem, um, apart from the title seemingly, um, so that explains because I, I was going to ask, and, and I'll I'll just talk while you look for it, Eric. If you don't find it right now, that's okay. No, I've got it. I've just got okay. it. Right away. Okay. Yeah, so so well, let me let me let me ask let me ask the question first, though, which is um, <laughs> because I, what, well, what I was going to say is, um, you know, why does the and but you've just given an answer. Why does that sentence begin? But what if it is all Maya illusion, right? Um, what in other words, like why the but? What what what's the um, what's the implied or, or previously stated um, thought or line that, he, that the question that he's going to ask now would be a kind of undermining contradiction to, in other words. Yeah. But, but the link here is, is that that's a, that's a quotation from Whitman and what Whitman is endorsing is the idea that some aspect of the world as we know it might in fact be illusory in, in this way. Is that, is that right? Eric? Yeah, I think Whitman adds to the stakes. So the opening of this poem is about the play of appearances, right? Which um, is is something that constitutes our world, right? The play of appearances constitutes our very like capacity to use really simple grammar, like here and there. Um, so that's the the canvas. I think the poem starts on. But give us, um, give us the, give us the, um, the lines from Whitman if you sure. have them. Yeah. Sure. So for readers at home, and maybe you'll link this, but yeah. it's from Calamus. It's, are you the new person drawn toward me? Are you the new person drawn toward me? To begin with, take warning. I am surely far different from what you suppose. Do you suppose you will find in me your ideal? Do you think it's so easy to have me become your lover? Do you think the friendship of me would be unalloyed satisfaction? Do you think I am trusty and faithful? Do you see no further than this facade, this smooth and tolerant manner of me? Do you suppose yourself advancing on real ground toward a real heroic man? Have you no thought, O oh dreamer, that it may be all Maya? illusion <laughs> that's great it's um, stunning i'm so glad uh, yeah i didn't i didn't know that i mean i i i wasn't as good at googling as you were <laughs> and, or, or maybe i didn't i didn't trust myself to know whitman as well as um, maybe you did um and and well and then um so so whitman is brought into the poem to deliver the message to quit quoting and then schuyler sort of doubles back on that thought and quotes whitman in fact but then dismisses him by saying, I doubt it though. You know, men, men are, aren't, are to not. Make all so this up. Yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole phenomenal world, men are not inventive enough. Humans are not inventive enough to make it all up. And but, so, and then he gets into these lines that Ashbury quotes in the intro. I mean, Ashbury had quoted those lines about, about Maya illusion, but, but these lines that are sort of more recognizably to me, Skylarian in, manner in yes. which he's like trying to describe the weather in a just right sort of way. Um, yes. Right now it isn't raining, snowing, sleeting, slushing, yet it is doing something. As a matter of fact, it is raining snow. Can can I give you my sort of um, interpoetic observation about that? I was like, well, what did those lines remind me of? And they, what they remind me of um, are Frank O'Hara in in um lana turner has collapsed oh yeah 
yeah, yeah. which is a poem from 1962. So, you know, it would have been fresh enough in, in um, Schuyler's mind. Those, that poem begins this way. Lana Turner has collapsed. I was trotting along and suddenly it started raining and snowing. And you said it was hailing, but hailing hits you on the head hard. So it was really snowing and, and raining. And I was in such a hurry to meet you. But the traffic was acting exactly like the sky. And suddenly I see a headline. Lana Turner has collapsed. It's a funny poem, right? Um, but that business of sort of these like ordinary weather terms in the gerundive um, forms getting sort of Raining. cycled through to get the just right kind of um, description of the thing that it is. I, I wonder if consciously or otherwise um, Skylar's um, late friend at this point, O'Hara would have, have been dead um, is, is sort of present in his mind um, as he's trying to describe the weather. Yeah, I think for sure. But yes, I, yes. Uh, I mean, just, my as a matter of fact, illusion, it is raining snow. My instinct on illusions is always, almost always yes, because I feel almost <laughs> like smell. No, I'm really, I'm going to double down on this. Yeah. Like smell, there's always a chemical trace there, you know, yeah. like we can exaggerate maybe how far it goes, but Yes. Yeah, so the irony of this poem, which, you know, I'm trying to say is the tender trap from Levi Strauss is that like, there's no, um, this poem doesn't make undue demands, but there's no easy way to enter it or to take it. And the counsel to quick quoting is immediately followed by so many more quotes, um, Whitman, but then I'm, I'm totally persuaded. You're right. I mean, Skylar, you know, they were roommates Mm-hmm. They and their way were best friends. They were very different people. They had a falling out. Everything with Frank O'Hara, you know, was deeply known and deeply um, powerful and sometimes wounding to Skylar. So that's there. The quote, the quotes in this poem um, really matter. You know, they, yeah. do you want to, do you want to say something about the ones that come in, in the next several lines, which are, are, are the Oh, the, or the hardest for me to place. Are quotation or, marks? Yeah. Yeah. That you come to me at midnight and say, I can smell that after Christmas letdown coming like a hound and clarify, I can smell it just like a hound does. So it came. Well, maybe it's my limits uh, of Googling prowess. But to me, those are moments in the poem where Skylar is putting in quotation marks, just kind of idiomatic language mm-hmm. that he finds. And, um, you know, he's drawing it from life. As we learned at the Skylar event, I think Eileen Miles said, and, and she would well know being Skylar's assistant, um, he would just have the TV on or the radio on. Right, like, right. He's surrounded by language and is a great um, aficionado. You probably heard my dog sneeze. An aficionado of, uh, you know, Americana or other kind of moments that are striking in language. So, yeah. You know, it starts with the italics, which the listener won't see unless they have the text of the poem. Now to infuse. There's these great lines, you know, to look out a window is to sense wet feet. I mean, you feel that. Actually, that's one of the most empathic moments in the poem. Yeah. Feel the wet feet. Um, And and I I do want to just pause there for a moment. I'm glad you reminded me of that line because it, it does link up with February in a way, which is it's another kind of Skylar is a great poet of the window, you know, of being inside and looking at something that's happening outside yeah but that's framed by the architecture from from of his viewing in some way right and he's such a wonderful observant descriptive visual poet but not only that so here looking out the window is to sense 
wet feet, you know, which is a different sensation, um, doggy shake, a different sensation. And it makes me think, okay, we, we might have a moment in the poem of empathy of, of, of direct feeling with, but it doesn't give us like transcendence. It gives us wet feet. Yeah. <laughs> right. We right. Have to, that the ordinariness of the poem starts to kick in. Right. So, you know, the ordinariness of, as a matter of fact, it was raining snow, you know, it is doing something. So ordinary life goes on. Ordinary language is, is just right, or is certainly good enough to evoke it uh, as it did in O'Hara. We yeah. sense the wet feet. Um, I'm feeling that just rereading it. And then he's evoking something about the task of the poet to infuse yeah. activity, uh, like a command to self, which is a comic note to self, now to infuse the garage. So not a privileged space, not a museum or a temple or anything. Now to infuse the garage with a subjective state and can't make it seem to. So failure somehow in that endeavor. Right. Even if it is a little like what the dentist saw. So that's an italics. And capitalized, like it's the title yeah. of a film or something. I don't know. I couldn't it. find it. I don't know it, but I also think it's kind of a joke because what the dentist saw is a dark gullet with gleams and red. So, you know, looking down into something that's just an inside that um, is uh, fleshy and dark and obstructs you. It's funny because most of us not being dentists are familiar <laughs> with the, with that scene from the other perspective, right? True. What the dentist saw is like um, to imagine a very commonplace kind of scene, but from the perspective that you are never allowed to have. Yeah. Right? Oh, man, I still remember <clears throat> everything about the facial details of my dentist when I was little and you're bringing that back. <laughs> But I, I also think, okay, this is about empathy because what the dentist saw is seeing inside a person. Right? Yeah. Like, and this, this is the Whitman thing, which maybe I've already underlined too much. Like Whitman adds erotic contact mm -hmm. to um, the beauty and difficulty of empathy, quote unquote. And the dentist thing, which seems like a throwaway is about seeing inside the body of another Um it, you know, it's just totally quotidian. It's uh, not um, transformative or erotic or anything. It, you know, it's, but, but it has that kind of phil philosophical um, setup to it, right? It's also, so, it's also silencing though, right? Like famously, comically. You can't talk. But, if right. You're... When the dentist is looking into you that way, you can't talk. Yeah, right, right, right. And then there's a quote, which I, I, you know, it's, it's, it has to do with the kind of set piece about love. Maybe it's from a song. I don't know. You come to me at midnight, but to me that cues love, mm. right? The lover comes at midnight. It's exciting or illicit or something. Mm -hmm. it, it cues expectations, which will feature when we talk about new year. Yeah. You, and we don't know who the you is. I, I don't know if we want to talk about that, but you know, it's the you of this idiom that's being drawn from the air right now and say, and this is in quotes, I can smell that after Christmas letdown coming like a hound and clarify, I can smell it just like a hound does. So it came. It's a shame. Expectations are so often to be counted on. Um, so the, the exciting, maybe illicit, 
midnight erotic encounter is then like deflected into these hounds and the Christmas letdown. Um, this poem is about managing expectation. I like that. I like that clarification though, too, that the poem con- that that is contained in that quotation, right? Like it's not that the thing you can smell smells like a hound smells. Right. Sm- smell is, is a, um, as a verb is an ambiguous one because of the way, you know, whether you mean it sort of subjectively or objectively, right. Yeah, right. Um, or whether, or whether it's transitive, I don't know what I, you, you understand the grammar of what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I can smell it just like a hound does. Subject, like, object. Right? Yeah. The hound, the hound yeah. is smelling it subject, you know, as a subject, but it's that not that it smells it. dog-like. But that picks up your great comment earlier, though, about why we want the here and there and why it's an enhancement and not something that should have been corrected out. Because, you know, smell the after dinner. dinner, Sorry, I had to flip the page and I just said dinner instead of Christmas. (laughs) I can smell that after Christmas letdown coming like a hound. So the clarification says it's um, the capacity or whatever, the 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 great power of smell that a hound has, but you've already heard that letdown coming like a hound as if it's like smells like a wet dog or something. I think it's coming like a hound in the sense of a hound on its pace. Like it's, there's a, there's an urgent running. There's something like you're being hounded. Yeah. Yeah. But the image of a hound at full run is also beautiful. You know, (laughs) it shows how inexorable letdown is. And of course, he can't say take back and have that not be a part of your connotations anymore. So then you're introduced to this kind of series of relays in the poem that are about um, just how challenging the setup and disappointment of desire and expectation are. Yeah. And I hear it in that line, even Eric. So it came. It's yeah, a shame. It expectations. It's a it's a funny kind of internal rhyme that is not typical of Skylar, I don't think. But and shame, I, shame. Yeah, right. Like, um, which is a kind of maybe a modeling of um, an expectation being realized. Yeah. As yeah. a disappointment. Yes, right. So if if empathy is almost like an impossible problem, but one that we always need to encounter as we want the other desire, um, the, the other uh, have desire in ourselves, like are entangled with ourselves and don't know ourselves. Um you know, we think of it as like an impossible thing to realize, but then this poem gives us things that just kind of share it. They simply don't um, change life for us. So, you know, the wet feet kind of gives us that feeling with, but isn't transformative. It it simply just gives us uh, life as we already had it. Um, in a way, what the dentist saw already gives us, we get inside the the kind of mysterious darkness of another body or perhaps of our own body as a medicalized body, but it doesn't give us anything on the other side of something wonderfully mm-hmm. transcendent and unknowable. It gives us life again as we already have it. And then here expectations are realized, right? But it's and that, a shame, and that's a shame. Often to be counted on. Yeah. Yeah. We, we got empathy. It just doesn't change the game. And that immediately brings us to the, um, what might feel like the most kind of topical or, or the, the business about the new year's resolutions new year is nearly here and who knowing himself would endanger his desires, resolving them in a formula. It's so good. It's sort of the, um, th- there's your, yeah. You want to talk about that, 
that question that that Skylar is asking there, it seems to me like it's that's that's like the best argument against making New Year's resolutions, right? <laughs> so to, so unpack that for us, Eric. Well, why okay, so, why why shouldn't we make New Year's resolutions? So puppies barking at the mailman. Yeah, don't worry about it. That's fine. so. Um, he's giving us the New Year in empathy and New Year. Um, why do these two things go so well together? Right. Um, right. We could probably talk about that forever, but I think that's a great question because it just kind of gets us back to the simple um, wonder of the construction of this poem. They do go together. Empathy is about feeling with and, and dealing with our own embodiment and otherness. New Year is um, gloriously trivializing these issues in a lot of ways about making these resolutions that, that hold us where we try to hold a, ourselves to our, you know, wishes to our better self, um, to being a little bit trimmer or w- whatever it might be, a little bit more self-possessed. Um, but they relate to these questions about the inadequacy of the self, um, uh, the constant need to have transport into a better self or into oh. another. Is the is the idea that the problem with New Year's resolutions as a concept that it it demands of us a kind of empathic relation with our future self that has the same problem that all empathic relations have if we accept the Levi Strauss sort of skepticism about them or yeah. Skylar's own kind of troubling of the of those boundaries. Yeah. In other words, be- like how could I know? as I sit here at the end of 2023, except by diminishing the self that I might be in 2024, what would be an appropriate sort of formulation of desire for myself now to then what I should, what I should resolve is to like want what I want tomorrow, not, not, not to, to resolve to get tomorrow what I want today. Yeah, no, I like that. And actually from, Romanticism, you know, those ideas are, well, they're in Hume. I mean, the David Hume, the philosopher, that like the sort of deconstruction of the promise is that it requires stipulating that future self, like you're saying. William Hazlitt has a whole um, philosophical treatise on that uh, called An Essay on the Principle of Human Action, which he wrote before all of his wonderful uh, personal essays. But my, I mean, for me, this part of the poem tells a lot of truth. Uh, that I just kind of take personally. (laughs) Um, I find it very moving and troubling. I don't myself make New Year's resolutions, but I can feel... Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, thanks. (laughs) I mean, you know me. And so this part of the poem is about self-knowledge, right? Like, I think I take Skylar's speaker, I'll just say Skylar, at his word, New Year is nearly here, and who knowing himself. So this is a statement that exhibits the speaker's self-knowledge not to make resolutions because to do so is to endanger his desires, resolving them in a formula. So that says something to me about the nature of desire, right? That in order to be preserved, it needs to be unspoken, not resolved it or, or that something about desire is irreducible um, and has to stay evasive, right? To stay alive. It's endangered if you resolve it in something fixed, like a formula. And uh, that's like metaphor, right? Like 
metaphor and other figurative language has that same kind of uh, qu- quality uh, of jumping, of dancing, of leaping from one thing to the next and being sort of um, inimical, right, to being resolved into a formulaic right. fixed ending. So, so, you know, so he's talking about the nature of desire. Right. Yeah. No, I love that. I, th- I think that's why you don't make New Year's resolutions because they can be too clarifying, right? It's almost like this is highfalutin, but it's almost like here he's in the line of like a Nietzsche or someone like that who says that the vital th- or D.H. Lawrence that the vital thing in a human being is our capacity, you know, to to want and create and produce, and something about that needs to be opaque. Yeah. To the formula of knowledge. Yeah. That makes sense to me. But what's funny to me about it is that this is the same poem which told us earlier, not knowing a name for something proves nothing. Right? That seemed to that earlier position the poem was staking out seemed to be in favor of being able to name things. Yeah. And here it seems like it's I mean, it's fine. Does he contradict himself very well? (laughs) He is large. Uh, He was large, right? Um, But raining snow. That's different from naming a desire. I think that lets the world stay mobile and Mm -hmm, fluid mm -hmm. and evasive. It is is the right word, but it's um, a good enough wording. Yeah. It does the job. Yeah. It's like what I was saying, that business about where he's the raining, snowing, all that stuff. It sort of reminds me of what I was saying in our earlier conversation about February, where like he was describing the scene so minutely, but I think I said something like, well, his color palette is weirdly kind of limited. Like it's, he's, he's like working with like the Crayola starter box of colors, (laughs) you know, nothing is chartreuse. It's always like pink, you know? Um, and, And here those weather words aren't, I mean, it's like he's got the basic ones that little kids know, and it's just a question of like putting them in the right arrangement to describe the thing that's happening rather than to try to metaphorize it or to use some kind of arcane meteorological language or whatever. Um, I think that's, I think that's it. And then the actions reinforce that because they're simple monosyllabic action yeah. melts and strikes uh, yeah. keeping keeping that kind of minimalist hard hitting simplicity yeah so um well then we we get to yeah, we get to this business that I want to ask you about eric um the the name of the year and i know because i didn't know until you told me having looked at his diaries and we don't have i mean we can maybe just note this and then move on that there's some weird question here about the date about the date so in the poem to remind listeners he says this this is how the first half of the poem ends 1968 and there he's spelled out the numbers 1968 what a lovely name to give a year it's funny to me he sort of anticipated that thing that has also become a meme you know like um fill in the blank would be such a lovely name for a girl Mm. Uh, but 1968 what a lovely name to give a year even better than the dogs wert bird than ever there's another quotation which i'm sure you'll have something to say about um from shelley right um oto skylark Skylark, that's all there is to say about it blithe spirit bird than ever wert right yeah right um and woofy personally (laughs) i'm going to call the new year mutt 
flattering it will get you nowhere. And that gets a laugh on the reading. And that's the end of the first section of the poem. So this business of sort of naming the year and so on. Um, well, what do you make of it, Eric? What does it matter? Does it matter? Do you have thoughts about it? Yeah. I mean, the relationship of the proper name to a noun, you know, is something we all understand, but it's intriguing and mysterious. And when you live with a year for 364 or five days, it becomes a name. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is that thing of just repeating a word until it estranges itself from you. Um, It's become ordinary, even though it's um, here, I guess the antithesis would be arbitrary. But then, you know, reading this poem, it's tricky because 1968 just isn't any year. And I don't know if Schuyler's trying to claim a sort of space apart from culture and politics, but 1968 is an especially volatile, important yeah. year. You know, um, student Politically, protests, Tat yeah. in Vietnam, assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. And so for him to sort of end it with 1968 is like a comfy old sweater right. is, is, is odd. Um, if one were writing a, a book chapter or something about this, like you have to try to confront that because it's sort of ostentatiously apolitical. Um, and then Un- the thing we unempathic. Just, it, it seems unempathic and seems not, not sympathetic to the, spirit of the times or to the demand to engage with, yeah, with um, just how fractious this moment was. But then you were going to tell us about the diary, right? But it is 1968. So it's like, you know, I mean, if we're being honest, right, like every year becomes worn smooth by the end of it, right? And so that I just want to say these words, because it's the part of the poem that I always underrate, and I think is so powerful, if, if time is spent with this, After a while, even a wish flashing by as a thought provokes a knock on wood. So often, a little dish-like place, worn in this desk, just holds a lucky stone inherited from an unlucky man. So, you know, knock on wood is something you do for good luck. We're not in control. We don't possess uh, knowledge and all the answers. And then it becomes this kind of remembrancer of the unlucky man that we know nothing else about, but who just sort of haunts that moment and then is passed off in the poem for 1968, right? Right. Yeah. And then we looked at the diary that Nathan Kernan, um, you know, has helped all readings of of Schuyler um, by providing for us. And it turns out pretty clearly that the part of the poem, um, particularly that, inform section two yeah was written at the start of 68 so we so have moving to, from new year's eve 67, 67 to new year's day 68 yeah so this question of like how could he think about 1968 in that way um maybe is answered by the fact that there's a slip or something or maybe an artistic choice for reasons i'm not sure of to portray it as 68 to 69 versus 67 to 68 if you follow the journal entry 1968 hasn't happened yet. This is the the new year that becomes 68. Yeah. Why did he do that? I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. Um, yeah. 
it's something it, well let's just let it float here as a question that maybe some answer will occur to us as we move along um we do get into the second section of the poem um which um eric is there something just sort of standing back from the poem sort of bipartite division into two halves that you could say as a way of sort of characterizing the a distinction in tone between the second half and the first mm. or topic or yeah that's a good question how the poem sort of moves or operates you know one thought i had originally was just well the the title of the poem is a bipartite title Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem as simple as saying, well, the first half of the poem is empathy and the second half is New Year. In fact, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem to resolve into that kind of mapping. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't know. Should we, should we just talk about um, should we talk about some of what happens at the beginning of the second half of the poem? I, I, I want to do that. I do like the question, though, and I, I don't have an answer to it. I, I don't think the poem gives an answer. And you can see that in as simple a presentational um, way as section two has a Roman numeral two. Yeah. I noticed this section, section one, one doesn't, doesn't have a Roman numeral one, but, 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 but when he read it at the, at the Dia, he said one. one. Yeah. yeah. So, and that formalizes the poem. I, I think, you know, I'm kind of a philosophically minded literary critic uh, when it suits me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think this poem is a poem about, um, you know, phenomena it's a phenomenological poem um but it resists uh the sort of traditional tidy like dialectical reading so i would be tempted to say the two parts of the poem frame uh, a dialectical awareness that doesn't have or seek or knows not to want <laughs> to require dialectical um synthesis or closure and oh. so that's partly why it's a two-part poem because it's all about here and there this and that now and then you and me yeah and there's no third right but but it's this great because you know there's just like well there's a very like duh obvious kind of reason for the poem to be divided that it's about this sort of liminal moment of transition and the and the part one is giving us the before and the part two the after yes um because there he is awake and he's sort of confused about what year is it right now he goes back to this sort of nostalgic um, sort of um, lingering over the sound of 1968 as a year, except now it's written out in um, Arabic numerals rather than spelled out in letters. No, I never Um, noticed that coming. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for. And, and then he starts talking about his reading habits, which I'm interested in. So um, got coffee and started reading Darwin. So modest, so innocent. So pleased at the surprise that he, italicized he, should grow up to be him, italicized him. Um, Eric, um, what do you make of the, the the reading of Darwin here, and of of modesty, and of the and of the of the sort of discovery that that Schuyler seems so pleased to narrate at this moment? Yeah. I mean, he did love reading Darwin. Um, I know that you love Elizabeth Bishop, and she did as well. So. Yeah. There's good, there's um, good. Impetus. I think for similar reasons too. Yeah, the aesthetic of observation and wonderment um, of a kind of particularity that could dissolve into something fantastically, mysteriously large um, and and truthful um, and accurate, which they both cared about. 
So I, I take it um, that he did get up that day and read Darwin. He probably had, for those of you that care about this um, out there in the world, he probably had instant coffee. Skylar was really into that. <laughs> yeah. So um, this wasn't good coffee. He got coffee. He didn't make it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I situate this probably at the Porters in Southampton because the passages in this part of the poem exactly line up with the journal entry that we just talked about written there um, January 1st, 1968. Um, But why Darwin? I mean, Darwin is not a figure we think of um, vis-a-vis empathy. And uh, beyond the fact that it happened like this. Well, but I mean, he does, he does help us here. He tells us what it is he finds endearing about Darwin. So So modest so innocent, innocent, so pleased at the surprise that he should grow up to be him. Right. In that, in that last um, observation of um, that he should grow up to be him, which also got got a laugh, I think, in, mm-hmm. uh, from the audience at the Dia. Well, he's so pleased with himself in a funny way. But well, but I'm sorry, I was just going to say, maybe there's some some sort of interest there, like there's something kind of Darwinian about the evolution that Darwin takes going from you know, like a person who has become this other person somehow. I don't know. Yeah. And then that makes me think about how that larger perspective is not something we really see about the speaker of this poem or about Skylar, right? Like the speaker in this poem is, as you so beautifully said, in a liminal before and after, but Darwin sort of gets in a way the, the big narrative, the master narrative, even in this moment, uh, kind of about Darwin's life that he should be him. Both of those are in italics. Yeah. I mean, my read on this is like Darwin is the great observer and compiler, right? Yeah. Of scientific um, behaviors and processes. Um, and so from the perspective of a Darwin, the emergence of the self or the ego kind of has the position of otherness. That's not how I live my life. <laughs> That's not how most of us live our life. We're mm. centered kind of in the self and the ego. But for Darwin, the realization that his um, social, existential, even biological, mature selfhood would emerge sort of strikes him with surprise as if it had the disclosure of the other. It's like it's like the inverse of the empathy problem, right? It where is. where in in empathy it's that you you're regarding objects as though they were subjects or something. And what's pleasing about Darwin is that he regards the subject as though it were an object. I think that's just it. Yeah. And then and then the notion that oh that's happening to him. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's inside him. So among the kind of um playful and mysterious but unresolved dialectics in this poem are, you know, that the inside and outside of a self, you know, and, and I think so Darwin um, is struck by that. And it's, a, it's kind of, we're making silly references or I am to old cartoons, but you know, he's the Mr. Magoo of this moment. Like Darwin is so focused on describing the critters and phenomena of the external <laughs> world that the realization of a self over time strikes him with alterity. Eric, you're 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 forcing me to do something which I've been trying to resist doing, which is to read into the record what I think might have happened here in terms of Schuyler's reading history. So you're right that Bishop Elizabeth Bishop 
is fascinated by Darwin too. We know that now because she wrote a letter to a woman named Anne Stevenson, a poet and scholar writer who was writing a, a like the first book, in fact, about Bishop um, while Bishop was still alive. She was the Eric Lindstrom to Elizabeth Bishop's James Schuyler. And um, she wrote she wrote Bishop a, um, letters in which she asked Bishop these questions about, um, you know, her poetry. And Bishop's letters back to Anne Stevenson survived and have been reproduced mm-hmm. and quoted. Anne Stevenson published her book about Elizabeth Bishop in 1966. Schuyler loved Bishop. I bet he read it. And in that book, Anne Stevenson quotes Bishop to this effect. So now I'm going to read to you. This is Elizabeth Bishop writing about Darwin. She says, To Anne Stevenson, I can't believe we are wholly irrational, and I do admire Darwin. But reading Darwin, one admires the beautiful and solid case being built up out of his endless heroic observations, almost unconscious or automatic. And then comes a sudden relaxation, a forgetful phrase, and one feels the strangeness of his undertaking, sees the lonely young man, his eyes fixed on facts and minute details, sinking or sliding giddily off into the unknown. What one seems to want in art, in experiencing it, is the same thing that is necessary for its creation, a self-forgetful, perfectly useless concentration. Um, I, I mean, I think that the business of like the, the Darwin that you were describing for us a moment ago, Eric, the Darwin who's observing the critters and <laughs> writing them down, and, and to whom it suddenly there's some kind of moment of crystallization or something where he realizes, Oh, I too am a critter. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't yeah. know that there's Body. some, yeah, there's, there's something about that. That's that, that I think, you know, so modest, so innocent, so pleased at the surprise that he should grow up to be him. Um, and, and Skylar feels, and I think this is, um, you know, as the kids say, relatable. I, th- I don't know. It's how grand to begin a new year with a new writer you really love. Mm-hmm. Um, so Darwin was a love for his, but also a new love here, it sounds like. A new, oh yeah, yeah. a new writer you really love. Yeah. I mean, he's not new in the sense of, <laughs> you know, up yeah, and coming, yeah, yeah. but he's new to him. Yeah, Sky. Yeah, right, Sky. And I'll wonder if he read Bishop, you know, and then thought, "I mean, I should give. I should take this up Darwin. Sounds interesting. Darwin. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. You've the got, dates make it work. You've got a yellow brick road of of great evidence there to make that argument. Okay, so we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we then a snow it. shovel scrapes. It's twelve hours later. Um, mm-hmm. Help us. Um, I'm, I'm sort of interested there. Something, something to do with time. The it's yeah. 12 hours later. The sense of sort of all this time elapsed, but 12 hours since since when? Since the waking at the beginning of the second section. Oh yeah, the poem. Four. Yeah. yeah, because it gets dark at. It's four, now in the after. You know, it's now it the evening or the late pink, afternoon. The few pink minutes before the day is gone. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> part two is more. As I think you said this really aptly is more of an identifiable Schuyler um, diary poem, diurnal poem. And so often in those, time passes within the poem. It's one of the beautiful effects that it sounds just so ordinary, almost like lazy. Um, Start writing a poem and let time pass as you write. Um, But it's one of the effects that he so um, marvelously lets happen 
<laughs> but there's also oh. this wonderful kind of disjunction or elasticity between the, fast. the time that's required to read it versus and the time that's implied in the enunciation of it versus the time that's like recorded diaristically. Yeah, you know? the snow shovel scrapes. You know, earlier we had the huge beast, which was the metaphor of the snowplow. Here it's yeah. um, the shovel scraping. Um, and in the journal, it's Johnny Porter Fairfield's son scraping and Skylar describes his clothes and the weather and all that. Um, and you get a moment that's a lot like that poem February that we read yeah. together um, with the pink last minutes of of the day. Um, and yet the days get longer. Yeah, Skylar's reminding us that somehow... It's just the start of winter in continental North America, but somehow the days are getting longer. Yeah. It, the, the poem is quietly disjunctive here, right? Um, yeah. The, the reading, reading, of course, itself, um, as you've written about, you know, so splendidly m- multiple times, like reading is going to introduce an effectively rich kind of uh, not empirical time. <laughs> and so his reading of Darwin, which presumably took whatever minutes it took here is almost treated more like it's a kind of poetic or lyric reading that creates a, a, a time that's not, um, you know, that's not indexed right uh, to yeah. the poem. It, it kind of allows us to uh, explore uh, different temporalities. And so immediately it's 12 hours later, and then there's a break midline again, very quiet, but disjunctive. Coming from the movies last night, snow had fallen. Um, the nice um, uh, completed perfect tense uh, or pluperfect tense snow had fallen while they were at the movies, presumably. Yeah, like you you go in the movie, there's no snow. You come out, there's snow. Magic. Yeah, yeah. yeah the right. world continues. And again, that keeps the, I think, light but persistent philosophical motifs of this poem. Like the world is definitely persisting, <laughs> even though they're in the uh, dark movie theater um watching a film so which is like what 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 might happen to us sorry for interrupting you as we read the poem right outside object permanence yeah (laughs) it's getting dark and change yeah object permanence means change so yeah and then and then you get this scene where um there's a beautiful natural like landscape i think porter did uh, multiple paintings of of twigs around southampton trees that are heavily laden with snow snow had fallen in almost still air and lay on all so all twigs were emboldened to make big disclosures so um the twigs are larger because of uh, being encased in snow but they're given this language which suggests like um you know verbal boldness and disclosure human empathic connections that the twigs are kind of being given that agentive kind of agentive <laughs> yes the the twigs are given the agentive weight of human disclosures here if and then i've taught this poem only um twice but students always love and connect to the next bit it felt warm warm that is for cold the way it does when snow falls without wind. That's so because special... you teach in Vermont. <laughs> they, yeah, right. they know what that means. Yeah. yeah, because we live in a. I live in a place where when it's snowing, that means it's warmer, <laughs> right. and the snow makes it feel uh, strangely warmer. And Skyler's capturing that, and he's he's right. Right, and then I love these lines, and I know you'll have interesting things to say about them, Eric, because they remind me of the conversation that we had last time. 
so now the friend who you've um, suggested to me must be Fairfield Porter to you. And I think that that just sounds right in part because of, you know, what he says is, so in quotation marks again, a snow picture, you said, under the clung to elms, then the quotation continues, worth painting. So what Fairfield says to Jimmy is, a snow picture worth painting. Um, you know, I'm interested in the way, so presumably P- Porter is looking at the landscape and he calls it a picture, a yeah. picture worth painting. Yeah. Like it's, it's already, a, it's like the paint, the, the work of art is already there. It just needs to be accomplished or something. Yeah. yeah. And this one deserves to be. Yeah. Right. And P- Porter did paint such pictures. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an offhand comment, right? Like part of what's appealing to me about this part of the poem, it's almost like a much quieter having a Coke with you, uh, Frank O'Hara, which you you mm-hmm. did in your, I think, very first episode with Brian yeah. Clavey. Like there's an intimacy here. Um, I, I don't want to read too much of this. I think you could read a lot into it, but I don't want to like misshape the tone of this part of the poem. But like they've gone to the movies. It's like a date. Skylar, you know, as Ann Porter Fairfield's wife said, came with them and stayed um, 12 years. Um, you know, they went out and it's, it's a, it's a throwaway comment that any two people, but certainly like a kind of cu- coupled in some sense um, combination would have like leaving a movie. You remark on how the weather's changed. It's a beautiful night. The snow picture worth painting. But when Fairfield Porter says that what might result <laughs> is something legitimately um, amazing. That's true. But I I guess what I'm noting dumbly insisting on too, is that there's something linguistically interesting about the comment as well, because it's different from saying um, um, that tree is worth painting. (laughs) Yeah. He's already seeing it as a picture, right? It's already become a, it's a pic. It's like the, you know, like the precocious film student who walks around looking at everything through his hands as though they were a viewfinder or something. I mean, I'm not saying it's precocious Uh, or sorry, I don't, I'm precocious. What I mean is pretentious and I'm not saying it's pretentious either, but it's, it's as though, sorry, what I'm thinking of Eric is how you said last time we talked that um, Schuyler was um, an, an ekphrastic poet in in not not simply in the literal sense, which might mean for those who aren't familiar with the term again, that would mean like a poet who is interested in describing paintings in his poems or other works of visual art. Though he does do that, but you meant it more generally that somehow Schuyler looks at the world as though it were a painting, yeah, um, and and describes it somehow in in those terms. Um, and it seems like at least in the reported speech here, Fairfield Porter is doing the same thing. Yeah. A snow yeah. picture worth painting. Yeah. He's yes. I think that is going on. And, but I think it fits the moment. Yeah. Um, I, like you're, you're recalling and articulating my kind of conceptual point better than I like have it in my own mind. And I'm going to play, um, I don't know what I'm going to play tag here and go to a different spot and say, this is how life kind of unfolds in these moments, right? Like when we come out of the movies and it's a calm, snowy, wintry night without much wind and it's warm, that is for cold. 
the world seems as it were framed for our, our looking, um, our mm-hmm. intimacy, our enjoyment. There are those moments that are just still and without being, you know, um, mediated in an extra way seem like they're um, just there, mm-hmm. um, you know, be, be, and it has to do with the stillness and the warmth and the kind of um, shared moment here, which will then immediately change. Right. And so yeah. that, that's said by um, the other, the you who I think is Porter. And then the speaker who will just say is Skylar, James Skylar, Jimmy, I said, the weather operator said, so there's all these saids yeah. which are kind of ungainly if you look at them, but yeah, quick quote speech, right? And <laughs> this is a poem about empathy and it really ends on what people said. Like the means we have is, is not just language, but talking to each other. And so it really rests on that yeah. to the point of being a little bit ungainly. The weather operator said, turning tomorrow to bitter cold. Then there's quotes again. So this has to be the you who I think is Porter. Mm -hmm. Then the wind will veer round to the North and blow all of it down. (laughs) Everything that's collected on the trees. And yeah, it's beautiful still scene, right? This is how um, cold happens uh, in such moments in such a place, Southampton, Long Island, the wind is blowing over Long Island sound from the colder Northern reaches in New England. Um. And then the quotations go away at that point. And then they go away. These very lovely, very lovely lines that end the poem. Do you want to maybe just read those lines to us, Eric, and then we sure. can talk about them as a group? Yeah. Sure. Thanks. Um, I do love these lines. And it's not in quotations, as you indicated. Maybe I thought. So I'm going to pause just for one second, then I'm going to read the whole thing. There's a poem about empathy here. The speaker doesn't even know his own thought, right? Mm -hmm. It's not enunciated, which means it didn't come out in the conversation, but it also means the speaker hasn't committed himself to saying exactly what it was. So maybe I thought it will get cold some other way. So that statement's in a weird space. It's not articulated. It was maybe his thought, maybe not. Maybe I thought it will get cold some other way. You, as usual, were right. It did and has. Night and snow and the threads of life, for once seen as they are, in ropes like roots. So one thing that's implied by those lines, Eric, is that they're they, they're being written the next day. It already has. The it wind has already veered around. It did. Yeah, there's a definitiveness. Um to how things unfold. And here it's just simply recorded that it unfolded the way the you anticipated and not the way the speaker um, maybe did, maybe didn't. For whatever reason, the speaker is committed to a possible like uh, difference, you know, things are restive for the speaker. Maybe it'll get cold another way. <laughs> which which would have been like um, a preferable way, a less harsh way than Fairfield seemed to have the good sense to know would happen. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, and, but I guess, I mean, I suppose I have a reading on this poem. I don't know. I think it connects back to being a poet as opposed to a painter. So like O'Hara has that uh, fun. Why I'm a and, poet. Yeah, right. So this this poem could also have been called why I'm a poet, not a painter. Yeah. Um, 
the the restiveness of it. Like the speaker doesn't commit themselves to how it would be different. Like you said, whatever difference would be probably less bitter, less cold, less about the wind veering around from the north, but also it just simply would be different. It would evade the definitiveness that Fairfield Porter has the good sense, not just as a weather prognostician (laughs) or a painter, but as a kind of human being to say, no, this is how it happens. Right. And so the speaker, for whatever reason, wants to evade that, to have a room of um, kind of motility where like it could happen a different way. Which sounds similar to the um, skepticism about the New Year's resolution. New Year, exactly. But, right? Yeah. But then evasion was a word that you use there too. Yes. But then, you know, things, whether big things in life, um, compilings of a year, things we do or don't do. People dying. Yeah. Things happen and that they're definitive and in that sense, simple. Uh, in a grammatical sense of they become the simple past mm. completed action. And that's what happens to the weather. So the weather becomes the bearer of the mysterious, like sometimes, you know, uh, uh, unspeakable definitiveness of simple action. You as usual were right. So here's just a friend being able to say, you're usually the one who's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it carries all this, other stuff about things do happen and happen definitively just the way this weather has. And that then becomes night and snow and the threads of life for once seen as they are. We don't always or can't always see them as they are. The threads of life. You you referred to that earlier, much earlier in this conversation, Eric, as a metaphor that was almost like a dead metaphor. Yeah, threads of life. Yeah, say, but say more about what, I mean, if it's dead, is it being like resuscitated here? Or is it, what work is is that? But even before we get to the final two lines, so night and snow and the threads of life, mm-hmm. for, maybe, maybe include the next line too, for once seen as they are. Mm-hmm. The th- threads of life, meaning what? The sort of the kind of texture of our lives, the things that connect one thing in our life to another thing in our life threads in that sense. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You got me on that one. Like I, I, I want to talk about ropes and roots, but the, yeah, I I do too, but I want to, I want to hold. I mean, the ties that bind the threads of life, the Mm -hmm. threads of life, you know, connects to the, the three fates and, but, but I'm struggling because it's a metaphor for what, right? The threads of life, it gets back to this kind of, uh, sometimes marvelous, sometimes ungainly, uh, repetitiveness or tendentiousness that Skylar isn't afraid of, um, the threads of life are a metaphor for life (laughs) for, Mm. you know, for, for, I mean, obviously relationships um, that's doing Mm. some work here as um, the equivalency of empathy, Mm. the equivalency of new year, you know, new year is a thread that goes from one year to the next. And we um, give it a kind of ritual Uh, time marking significance. You said something about the, um, the sort of spooling or the, um, the, um, you know, sorry, I'm losing my, um, art- articulateness at this moment, but, um, I, I wonder also like the, the idea of like the, th- I'm thinking of, of, um, Ariadne's thread of like a, of a kind of, um, thread that would connect 
yes. or that would be a path of some kind or like a, a um a thread to follow or a thread to, to like that would be like the calendar or something to yeah. follow. Yeah. Honestly, I'm going to say something super um I don't know what subjective. The, the way I read this poem, Fairfield Porter um died in the mid 70s fairly soon thereafter. Um not at a very young age, but he wasn't that old either. He was maybe early 60s. Um I haven't googled that in a while, but I think that's about right. The the way this end of the poem lands is almost as if it were um, an elegy for Fairfield Porter, the way that Buried at Spring, Schuyler's beautiful poem, is is an elegy, a, a d- demonstrated actual elegy Franco. for O'Hara. Yeah. Like there's a sense of definitiveness and loss and threads of life is evoking in a failed way, because it's almost a cliche, what you're left hanging on to with that, like what the relationships truly yeah. are and also how they how they how they break. Right. Um, but I don't have a good answer because I can't say like what, you know, the kind of um, tenor of that uh, metaphor is. And, and then what Skylar sort of does do, which I think I yes. am um, into because I feel like I've got something to say about it, is that he makes that big evocation of life, the ties that bind, the things that can break, the things that hold continuity um, for once seen as they are. So here's the moment where the poem is able to kind of look things straight, um, look at things straight without that vital evasiveness I've been trying to evoke in terms of metaphor. And th- and then what I love in the end, you know, Schuyler's pretty sparing with his metaphors. Um, threads of life become ropes Threads of life in ropes. So they become thicker somehow. They become more durable. Yeah. Harder. Yeah. Still, you know, if you look at a rope, like it has that texture. Yeah. Right? Um, It's made up of lots of threads. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's also a metaphor that would evoke, to me at least, the trees uh, in the snow picture worth painting, that there's something about a tree in that environment, or in general, a tree in winter Mm -hmm. that has a kind of ropey, stark, captivating wonder to it. Um, it, You know, they look like cables, um, you know, and then, and, you know, obviously a rope is a connective, but also sometimes violent um, thing uh, on a bridge, on a ship. Um, So the threads of life evoke things as they are, but through metaphor, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it's a metaphor that's also, very faithful to perception, you know, to perception of trees, but of course relationships. And then that's not good enough. And what I love about this is as modest as the poem can be, or as Schuyler sometimes is the way Bishop could seem to be too. He doubles down or triples down. The threads of life are finally seen as, you know, things as they are seen as they are because of two metaphors in ropes, but then the ropes themselves are like roots Um, so by the end of those lines in service of seeing things as they are, he's given us like a couple metaphors and a simile. Yeah. And the, and the, um, the progression from threads to ropes to roots 
is one of becoming, in general, more sort of substantial and kind of um, right robust or something. Um, but then also the what the roots give us is like a um, a kind of image of something that's organic and also um, sustaining. Mm-hmm. And not just binding, but like, um, you know, it um, engaged in the kinds of biological, you know, Gross. processes that, yeah, that oh, the Darwin Things might still grow can, in New Year. You know, it's not the Earth isn't ready for that, but these roots, like you're evoking, I never had thought of that at all. They, yeah. they, they, you know, they, they, they grip, they reach down and what is mm-hmm. the, and, and, you know, I'm you're making me think of spring and all. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I also, I think that that's if winter great. comes, Eric. <laughs> yeah. I, that's better than, I didn't have that positive reading at the end of the poem and that's better than what I had because I just see the stolidness of ropes like roots that at the same time they have all those qualities of engendering and of um new potentiality and growth organic growth yeah no i see something like that i also look at them is just stolid and ugly and there and embedded i I should i wish i knew offhand how skylar would pronounce the word that's spelled r-o-u-t-e-s like would he say routes or or is it a homonym with roots um because if it is a homonym, then I also like the idea maybe that the, these ropes are like paths to follow or something, you know. Um, and I'm thinking about Whitman taking the cars and all oh, that. Oh, that's great. You know? Yeah. And yeah, no, that's really great. I I hear roots, um, you know, he has a, I don't know, I, that would be my guess, but on no basis do I say that. You're making me look down too, because I realize we finished the poem, so I should have a finishing mentality where... Part well, one ends with to. the word nowhere. It begins with, you yeah. know, all the um, playful tacking back and forth between here and there, but it ends nowhere, which, yeah. um, you know, connects to the wary, um, almost guarded quality of the opening of the poem. But, you know, this one ends with roots. Mm-hmm. So there's a little plot. And and I like how nowhere is the last word of that first section, as you said, but the and the first words of the last of the stanza that that concludes are new year, like oh, which nice. which feels like uh, almost anagrammatically related to nowhere, you know, or yes. closer than that, or something. You know, it's a funny kind of relation between. Yeah, them. no, that's great. It does. Um, this is the most sober New Year poem. I I mean, I don't know that many New Year poems, but. You know, he's getting up at four to read Darwin and drink his coffee. Yeah, there was nothing about sort of champagne or celebration or, and in fact, to the extent that the kinds of conventional New Year's Eve or New Year's um, practices are acknowledged, they're argued against here, like the business about the New Year's resolutions, like it's an argument against those. Who sees things as they are on New Year's Day? And yeah, you know, I have to say, I mean, I find it like a, I find this to be actually a kind of cheerful poem in the end. Um, I don't, I mean, it's, it, yeah, 
I don't know. There's something, um, maybe it's sort of Pollyannish of me to, to say this, but it feels mm. sort of, um, I don't know. There's an anchoring in the friend. I mean, you, yeah. I, you know, there, there, yeah. this, this poem is, um, the tone of this poem is not flighty. <laughs> it's mm. uh, a downbeat, but within that, the downbeats, I think because they, uh, don't really get answers or knowledge, but do kind of find anchorage in the real. Um, I agree. Like that's interesting that, you know, th- th- there is something, um, lovely and fortifying about this poem. And if I had to point to it, it's, it's a really flat line, but the, the greatness, I guess you could say empathically or like in terms of the ethics of friendship of just saying you as usual were right (laughs) and has, you know, it didn't has normally has the blow of almost kind of like a fatefulness that could really harm. But when it's married to you as usual, were right. Yeah. The closeness and comfort of being with that other who's the right one um, yeah. gives the passage of time and happenstance uh, that quality of ongoingness, of trust, even the ropes like roots, which are the kind of unadorned element of the earth, you know, that uh, we have to go back to somehow are attached to this other voice you as usual were right Mm -hmm. so fate doesn't harm Mm. right that that, you know yeah it it would be it would be nice it would be a comfort to to believe in the project of empathy if maybe you know but but maybe here we we get a kind of um skepticism about that concept but that replaces it with something that does its work by more reliable means or you know um that has to do with friendship as you're suggesting here um and, yeah um well you, I, I feel like i feel like i've done this in our conversations twice but particularly today like um this is the best you know two hours i've had with this poem and yet i feel like i've been in moments like naysaying you or like pushing back you and I, and I think that that happens in this poem, right? Right. There could be more alignment between the two figures in the second half of the poem, but the speaker kind of almost wants to create difference. Uh, maybe I thought it will get cold some other way. I feel like friends and, and, and intimates, um, often have this dynamic, which we play out as a kind of unresolved dialectic, yeah. or maybe the resolution is only love where like the other takes a certain position just because the first person offers up what they have to say, and then you just depart from it. I mean, I know that that is my default reaction to conversation in life. Uh, to all me. too often, <laughs> and the real the, the realization is the reason why that's happening is to get you as usual were right. It didn't has so empathy is um what's the word? It's a kind of foil yeah. for the realization that difference provides the real anchorage and pleasure. I love it. And why would we collapse that? No, we shouldn't. Let's not. Um... Let, let's let's end here but let's let's um let's end with you reading the poem for us one one time eric from beginning to end if you don't mind can i offer you a deal okay i'll take part one and you take part two. Oh, fair enough i like it i would love to hear that okay should i read the epigraph again 
I think you should do whatever you want, but yeah, since you asked. It's not in French. Um, Empathy and New Year. A notion like that of empathy inspires great distrust in us because it connects. Sorry, my glasses are not as good as they need to be because it connotes a further dose of irrationalism and mysticism. Levi-Strauss. Whitman took the cars all the way from Camden, and when he got here, or rather there, said, quit quoting, and took the next back through the Jersey meadows, which were that then. But what if it is all Maya illusion? I doubt it, though. Men are not so inventive, or few are. Not knowing a name for something proves nothing. Right now it isn't raining, snowing, sleeting, slushing, yet it is doing something. As a matter of fact, it is raining snow. Snow from cold clouds that melts as it strikes. To look out a window is to sense wet feet. Now to infuse the garage with a subjective state and can't make it seem to, even if it is a little like what the dentist saw, a dark gullet with gleams and red. You come to me at midnight and say, I can smell that Christmas letdown coming like a hound, and clarify, I can smell it just like a hound does. So it came. It's a shame expectations are so often to be counted on. New Year is nearly here, and who himself, sorry, New Year is nearly here, and who, knowing himself, would endanger his desires, resolving them in a formula. After a while, even a wish flashing by as a thought provokes a knock on wood so often, a little dish-like place worn in this desk just holds a lucky stone inherited from an unlucky man. 1968, what a lovely name to give a year. Even better than the dogs, Wirt, Bird Thou Never, and Woofy. Personally, I am going to call the new year Mutt. Flattering it will get you nowhere. Two, awake at four and heard a snowplow not rumble, a huge beast at its chow and wondered, is it 1968 or 1969 for a bit? 1968 had such a familiar sound. Got coffee and started reading Darwin. So modest, so innocent so pleased at the surprise that he should grow up to be him. How grand to begin a new year with a new writer you really love. A snow shovel scrapes. It's twelve hours later, and the sun that came so late is almost gone. A few pink minutes, and yet the days get longer. Coming from the movies last night, Snow had fallen in almost still air and lay on all, so all twigs were emboldened to make big disclosures. It felt warm, warm that is, for cold, the way it does when snow falls without wind. A snow picture, you said, under the clung-to elms, worth painting. I said, the weather operator said, turning tomorrow to bitter cold. Then the wind will veer round to the north and blow all of it down. Maybe I thought it will get cold some other way, 
you, as usual, were right. It did and has. Night and snow and the threads of life, for once seen as they are, in ropes like roots. Hmm. Eric. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> what a pleasure. Yeah, what a... Um, what a way to end 23. It was uh, a treat and a surprise. We su- surprised myself. <laughs> you surprised I, mean, I asked and you said yes. And that um, really was a delight. Let's do this at least once a year. Um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks, listeners, for tolerating. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us. Um, hang out with us some more. I, I wish everyone a happy new year. And um, and let's talk more about poetry in 2024. Bye, everyone.